1: For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life. Oftentimes, we, we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called, called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, is always great to have you on the show.
2: Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. really appreciate it.
1: Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels, emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with this sense of where God, why God
2: yeah we really do i mean you you hit the nail on the head these are these are existential questions you know these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence and um they they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about god and um you know as as i prepared for the show tonight i i knew you were going to ask me about this and i was i was talking it over and and praying about it with my wife and i was reminded of the verse in 1st Thessalonians that says you know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and, you know, but we still grieve, you know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved, and I'm reminded of the the doctrine of total human depravity, you know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ, and I think, you know, what, what you take from this Events, I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military sinegling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that, um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really, there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us, maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we're reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us, he does seek us out, and he does give us the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in him.
1: You know, what you say, I know, even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent. To your observations, and yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience? Meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of a coldly and in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is you know man's depravity. It is separation of God from God by by sin. It is our inclination to do wrong and evil, and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total, mental assent to those realities. And yet, there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God, I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day. Uh, we look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things.
2: Yeah, we are, you know, and I, I I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I I spent a lot of years just Intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them, and there's this this strange tension in the church where you know you're you're clinging to truths and you have biblical truth, but yet you you still want to experience things, you want to feel comforted, and you know for me, uh, I think the Bible is full of uh, of examples of people who you know cling to cling to Christ and cling to cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them, and on one level you. You, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how you know, King David, who, you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a an adulterer and a murderer and he has the audacity and the and the courage really to ask God for a clean heart and then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that, and, you know, as to how that comforts, you know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday, I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad, you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that, and I've, I've found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that, and you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know. God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening, um, but but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of uh, of life's terrible storms. I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can. We can look to the lord and just say thank
1: you there's yeah. one thing though that tends to kind of complicate this and after a brief time out i want to kind of dig deeper we we spoke of the the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from god's perspective from god's word then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh go into where we we understand intellectually what's going on and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up and we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Cluck is with us today, a look at Finding God in the Dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes... being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, You know, painting on the smile and and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek.
2: Yeah, I think it absolutely does. And I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years. You know, the issues were different for me in that, you know, our, our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation related failures that I was experiencing. And instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross in those things for a lot of years, I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical. Um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and you know, I was I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody, but inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who uh, would put me through this, quite frankly, was, was my thought process, and um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully, the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church... Um, It was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought, but um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that.
1: I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that, right on the cusp of of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the 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 sister of of one of your adopted boys. Uh, mm-hmm. the, another couple stepped in, and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away, and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They all tend to kind of want to be happy and and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak, and yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain.
2: Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment as I am, you know, there, there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self promote. And, um, I find, I found myself doing a ton of that, you know, uh, again on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But, You know, for anybody who knew me then or or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And, um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder and just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter and uh, I need your help, you know, um, Thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and uh, and, and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that, so I'm thankful.
1: What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight?
2: Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own you know, dark places. So hopefully, it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up. You know, and He'll um, He'll redeem us and He'll give us peace and He'll give us you know the, the clean hearts and the and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm fifty-one. And you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles. Uh, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that, and we wanted to, you know, to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us, you know, a couple of really sinful, screwed-up guys.
1: We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord, and I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as, as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark?
2: I think keep asking and keep seeking, and, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think, you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to to... to Come after us at times and, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I starting at, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, s- search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you.
1: A look at Finding God in the Dark, Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is really recently published by, i got to get my cheaters on here, boy. Reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers, and you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedkluck, K-L-U-C-K dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Kluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. <laughs>
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god, but in fact it is a, an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods. Within the, the deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God, or a God, to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement and it really is heartbreaking from a christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this and you can you can sense about you uh, the demonic presence all around and the depravity of man and it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to god and somehow connect with him and appease him and yet we know from the story of the Bible that, in reality, God came down. In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight.
3: Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you.
1: Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture, you know, people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth, it, it, it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God. God came down, and as he did so, he, he he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he?
3: Yeah, he did, and, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him, in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth, and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made. He got dirty, and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I, I called the book "Dirty God." I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ.
1: In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it?
3: You know, it is. It, it's you know not natural that that. Uh, we, you know, we we are to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we we hold people accountable and we hold grudges, and in, in the face of justice, God is just. But what He is is He's also a God a God of grace. And so He wrote the story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch. You know, it, it, everything through all of history is the same plot: this plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace has gotten. And grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty, so the world could get clean.
1: You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of. Capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't ten commandments. There was just one: don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, "Okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan," and it, it ultimately, kind of, in the perspective of some suggesting that, that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you, you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness.
3: Yeah, you know, the the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God, but what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, The Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called, called Nazareth, And eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off on the cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it it took God's strength. It's not a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to uh, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And And
1: it is at at so many levels so uncomprehensible, because I, I think we all have an idea about Things that, uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do. And yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings, coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do.
3: Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he he chose these people. And you look at their stories. You know, you, you, Peter, who's, who's, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got doubting Thomas, who's, who's you know clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you they got they're the sons of thunder. They called them, you've got all of these different personality types. These people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome, but instead he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us, Mm. and and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect, and Jesus arrives as a God that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them and he does. That's the image of Jesus,
1: the dirty dog. And what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across. I mean, you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group, most of whom most most decent fathers uh, that care about their daughters would would, would hardly allow your daughter to <laughs> date any of these guys, <laughs> let alone look at this group and say, as very God himself. I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end it it, it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this, the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really, I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it?
3: It, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were, he, he saw where they could be, and he he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities, and you see how he used the characteristics of the, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. Now, one of the things I really believe the Church needs to do is resurrect the, the human side of Jesus, you know, we, the, the Church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way. And his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening, even to our conversation now, that feels like that the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person, because because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle. That Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in
1: him. So not, not only using not where we are, not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly, and and I'll have you go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break to to help illustrate God's willingness to, to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see In Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, pastor, advisor, professor of religion, vice president of Liberty University. He is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot Org. Back to more of our conversation in a moment.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God: Jesus in the Trenches. Also serves as vice president of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41, and, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper.
3: You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time because we, in, particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing, uh... diseases and to the degree that it was in the in the first century but um, in the first century i mean when when someone had leprosy when they arrived inside of a town if they even came into a town they had to carry a bell with them and they had to ring the bell they had to announce themselves as a leper i mean if you saw a leper at the end of the road you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction and so can you imagine when jesus in this like show-stopping moment decides. That the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about, where where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus's feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon, the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message. But he reached to the rejected ones, grace and mercy in the gospel. And can you know, imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with.
1: It's interesting. We, we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods, I don't know what, that this is the singular case of a God that would be as a man.
3: I guess it is. I mean, this, this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my, my work around the world. I have degrees in religion, I teach religion, I, I travel quite a bit, and I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India, I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in and, and, and South, Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five Ks, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us, and where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them, the story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for Him to climb down to grab us and take us back with Him.
1: And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly, uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, in, in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment. Um, how beautiful the child might be is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is, is inherent to all, virtually every major world religion. And yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. That through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of a relationship with the very Creator, of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic. Even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course, through Johnny's website at johnnymoore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E, M-O-O-R-E dot O-R-G. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Morgan, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches.